Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. For season three, we are sitting down with some of the most successful founders to better understand what entrepreneurship means to them, the operational processes they have employed on their startup journey, and what lessons they've learned along the way. Today, we are delighted to begin season three with Alex Chesterman. Alex is one of the UK's leading digital entrepreneurs and angel investors. He has founded some of the UK's most successful online businesses, including Kazoo, Zoopla, and Love Film. Alex has also been one of the UK's most active angel investors over the past 10 years, backing dozens of early stage British digital startups, including Perkbox, Carwow, Farmdrop, Tide, Perligo, Clio, Thriver, Fairwill, Third Fort, and many more and was awarded an OBE in 2016 for his services to digital entrepreneurship. This is an amazing episode to launch season three with, and we're super excited to introduce it to everyone. And we hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think. Welcome to Riding Unicorns, Alex. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So as you know, season three is going to be exclusively founders and entrepreneurs. So we want to start by asking, what does entrepreneurship mean to you? Well, I think when I started out, it meant to me working for myself, not having a boss, being my own boss, being able to do my own thing. My dad was an entrepreneur in that sense, and it gave him freedoms that he enjoyed. And so I think that's how I originally thought about it. I think probably more recently, as I've done multiple businesses, I think of it more in terms of attacking challenges that other people haven't taken on, trying to fix problems and doing things that other people have chosen or for whatever reason they've thought are too hard to deal with or, uh, or too problematic. So it's sort of looking more at challenges and trying to figure out how to solve those challenges is what is how I view it nowadays. Yeah, I think that actually takes us quite nicely on to the next question. You know, after setting up a couple of super successful businesses, you probably didn't need to work another day. So where did you find the motivation to keep on setting up businesses? I mean, it's it's hard work. So how, how do you manage that? Yeah, look, it is hard work. And I always, you know, I'm also an, uh, an angel investor. And that's one of the things that I always tell people when they think about starting a business as opposed to, you know, getting a job. And it is hard work and it's also a long journey. I think a lot of people think of entrepreneurialism as a get rich quick scheme and it definitely isn't that. My experience has been uh, one where these are long journeys and I often use the seven year analogy because it was seven years in my first business that I started Screen Select, which became Love Film. That was seven years from 2003 to 2010 between starting it and selling it to Amazon. Similarly, with my second business, it was seven years from the time we started in 07 to the time we floated it in 2014. So I have this sort of view that if you're making a commitment, you're making at least a seven-year commitment to one of these businesses. Yeah, I think that's a good thing for founders to take on board. So you did entertainment and then property. What was the moment that you decided to take on the car industry and what sort of research or industry figures did you have at your disposal that made you 
choose that as the next sector you wanted to disrupt? You know, I'm very consumer centric in all of the businesses that I've started, but also most of the businesses that I've backed also uh, as an angel, which is I'm attracted to the idea of using technology. If I go back in my early career, I grew up in the UK. I spent the whole of the 90s in the US and Asia, actually, running around opening restaurants. So nothing to do with technology, but it was a very entrepreneurial experience. I spent about 10 years doing that where I would go into a city and I'd find a site and I would hire a team and I'd open and then I'd move on to the next city. I was working for a group that involved the Hard Rock Cafe and Planet Hollywood at the time. And so I had sort of 20 or 30 startup experiences in different cities that I was doing each time and then moving on. But, you know, as technology started to take over our lives in the early 2000s, I was very attracted to the idea of how you can improve consumer experiences generally, not sector specific in any way. It didn't have to be entertainment or property or, or, or cars, and I'll explain why it ended up being those. But, you know, Amazon was a really attractive concept to me as a consumer, just a materially better experience, a better way to buy products in those days. And there were lots of other opportunities to apply technology to significantly improve the consumer experience. And the first one was one that I saw in the States, it was Netflix, which I saw in 2002. It was a very small business then, or relatively small. It was less than $2 billion. It's now north of $200 billion. It was a DVDs by post business, but it was fundamentally different to what we had all been doing before. And maybe you guys are too young. I, when I explain to my kids what we used to do in terms of watching movies, you know, now it's a click of a button and you press play and it's done. Uh, it used to be a trip to the video store limited selection they'd lend it to you for a short period of time you'd have to bring it back or get fined if you didn't bring it back on time it was inconvenient it was poor value it was limited selection but it was what we did and nobody knew better and we all did it and we all thought it was brilliant until something significantly better came along and i saw netflix and it just occurred to me that this is fundamentally better on a number of different dimensions for the consumer better selection, better value, better convenience. So that was the first sort of entree into applying a digital platform to materially improve a consumer experience. And then similarly, I got the idea for my second business, which was Zoopla. I saw Zillow in the States where in 2006, and then I started Zoopla in 2007, which was very similar. It was materially improving the data available to consumers when thinking about transacting, whether buying or renting a property. And again, you know, I go back to you guys are probably too young to remember this, but the way we used to do it is we used to walk up and down high streets, looking in estate agents' windows, going inside, and they'd hand us what they call property particulars, which was a printout of A4 pieces of paper, which had pretty limited information on them so you know a few photos and a description and you know you couldn't get floor plans you couldn't get historic pricing you couldn't get any of the available information and so again it occurred to me that this is just a fundamental improvement on what consumers are used to and it's interesting because if you go back and look at both of those businesses and their growth people often thought that we must have been really good at marketing and doing something incredible to get the 
traffic we were getting at Zooplaw, for example, to get the number of subscribers. We got to a million subscribers at Love Film. And the truth is we weren't necessarily marketing geniuses. It was the proposition was so much better than the alternative, the historic way, the incumbents were doing it, that consumers, as soon as they experienced it once, they never went back to doing the old thing. And in fact, they're sort of left scratching their head saying, I can't believe I used to do it that way. And this latest business has followed exactly the same form, which is in 2018, I saw Carvana in the States, online buying and selling of cars. We were not doing any of that in the UK. The experience wasn't a particularly great one. And this is, again, better selection, better convenience, better quality, better transparency, just better on every dimension. And Carvana was a four or five billion dollar business when I looked at it three years ago. And today it's a 40 or 50 billion dollar business. So all of them have the same theme running through them, which are using a digital platform to significantly improve a consumer experience and also in a mass market, something we all do. We all watch films, we all rent or buy property, and we all drive cars or rent cars or whatever whatever it is. And so big markets with a significant opportunity to disrupt what is a not brilliant consumer experience and can be made a lot better. And that's what motivates me. So it sort of goes back a little bit to your your earlier question, Hector, which is, I don't need to do this again, but fixing the problem, if nobody else is doing it, you know, I'd be very happy if somebody else was doing it, but nobody else was. So I'm sort of forced to dig in and try and fix it myself. It's really interesting hearing you talk about this and the sort of desire to improve the consumer experience. Reminds me a lot of talking to Simon Franks, who we had on the podcast, and he too got very animated and passionate about you know, the ways in which you can improve the consumer experience, which of course he did with the other business that became part of Love Film. And he's now on the board of Europe Car and he spoke passionately about how he's going to improve the customer experience there. I know that you guys have done lots of angel investing together. Is that shared kind of vision of the consumer experience part of the reason for you guys enjoying investing together? You know, Simon's a great investor. He's super smart. We're good friends. And you're right. We are both focused on How can you bring technology to bear to significantly improve something that is suboptimal? And it's typically consumer for us. It doesn't always have to be, right? You know, there's plenty of other spaces where that's true as well. But I think we both have an understanding. And one of the things people have always said to me when I've gone into these spaces is, and I hear it over and over again, and I hear it even more recently in the space that I'm in now, which is, you know, 20 years ago or slightly less, what the hell do you know about film? How on earth do you think you're going to disrupt that space? And, you know, 15 years ago, it was what the hell do you know about property? And three years ago, it was what the hell do you know about cars? And and the simple answer that I always give is that I'm a consumer. I, I am the customer of this business, right? I was the customer of Blockbuster Video Store. I was the guy looking to figure out what the right thing was to pay for my property that I was going to buy or rent. And I am the guy who has historically traveled 50 miles to go look at a car, to buy it and decided not to buy it and wasted half a day. And so, you know, consumer businesses are 
at least for me, they're the easiest to understand and the easiest to add value to because I am the customer. And so if it's a problem I'm trying to solve for myself, I imagine that it's a problem that other people are having too. And then the way you validate that, of course, in any business that you start is you need two types of people to validate it for you, right? You've got to convince investors to tell you that you're not crazy with their capital and their checkbooks. And you've got to have people, employees, tell you you're not crazy by willing to join you on the mission. So if you have an idea that you're trying to solve a problem and you manage to convince investors that it's worth backing and people that it's worth joining the mission, then that's the validation that I always look for. Yeah. And I'm really interested to understand how your angel investing has impacted you as a founder, because we all hear a lot about how being a multiple time founder is very useful and you draw on the experience of previous businesses to help you be successful in the new business. Obviously you have that experience, but you're in a a rare position where you've had successes in business, but also successes in angel investing. And I'd love to know whether you've drawn on your experience as an angel investor to help you succeed with Carzu and, and, and Zoopla, and whether you've seen mistakes that those companies have made and you've seen things that they've done really well and copied them in, in your businesses. Yeah. So look, I got into angel investing and I'm, you know, I've been over the last dozen years, a pretty active angel in the UK and I really enjoy it partly because there's lots of spaces where technology can improve it. But of course you can't do all the things. There's lots of ideas that you have, but you can't do them all. You can only start and run one business at a a time full time. And as I said, these are long journeys. So if I happen to find Uh, somebody who's got a great idea in another space that's one that I wish I had the time to do myself, but they're the right team and they got the right idea. I'm very happy to back them. Look, I got into angel investing actually accidentally almost because the world was quite different back then in the sense that there were uh, a number of decent VCs in the UK, but they were not pre-seed or seed stage. There were very, very few. And in fact, to give you an example, when William Reeve, my partner, and I originally went to raise money for Screen Select in 2003, we went to 16 VCs and we got 16 rejections. And we ended up piecing together an angel round, checks of 25 to 50 grand. I think we ended up with 40-something people on our cap table to put together our first round of 1.2 million pounds. So that just gives you a view of what the world looked like back then. And then of course, with the success of Screen Select and Love Film, other founders had the same issue. They were going to VCs, they were getting rejected. And so we started to see quite a lot of people would come to us for advice and you know, not necessarily money, but they'd say, look, how did you do it? Where should we go? We've got this great idea, we need some money. Tell us how you did it and can you point us in the right direction? Very often the right direction was forget the VCs unless you're good at handling rejection like we were. You need to you know, put together an angel round. And by the way, if we loved it, we'll uh, uh, put some money in. So that's sort of how Simon and I started investing together and, and some of the others. And, you know, William and Errol Damelan and a whole bunch of us sort of got involved in angel investing in that way and then you know over a period of time we were quite active and it's only more recently over the last i would say four or five years where 
two things have changed from an angel investing perspective. One is the VCs have stepped into that world in a big way. So there's a lot of pre-seed, seed funds. So there are now a lot of funds that specialize in that. So angels, you know, angels were filling a void 10 years ago. There was no, there was nowhere else to go other than uh, to us. So if you were lucky enough to find angels, your business got funded. And if you didn't, you probably didn't get funded. Today, there's lots of uh, other, other places to go. And so, you know, we're less active probably now than we were back then. But I think the reason I do it is most of the people I meet are versions of me 15 years ago, which I love. I love seeing new uh, and exciting ideas and people who are passionate about disrupting. But the type of stuff I invest in is very similar to the type of businesses that I've started, which are big spaces, disruptive models, great teams. Those are sort of the three boxes. If they check those boxes, then I'm pretty much likely to be in. The way the world has changed is that there's now a lot of other people in that space as well. And also, Angel's got a lot of credit historically. Sort of 10 years ago, VCs understood that the ecosystem started with Angel's and Angel's came in and then the VCs sort of took the bat on after it reached and that you know, Angel's were taking high risk and there was respect for that. Uh, that world's changed a little bit now and I think you've had a lot of different types of VCs come into later stage VCs. So come in who don't necessarily have the same view of the value that angels provide. And so I'm not sure they're, they're treated quite as well as they, they used to be, which is, which is unfortunate. But, you know, at least there's other people to fill that void these days. Alex, I'm interested to understand what it's like fundraising as Alex Chesterman now. So obviously you had that experience of 16 rejections years ago, but now... What's it like when you go out to raise a first round for Kazoo and do you put together a pitch deck or is it just a case of picking up phones to people you know? And then I'm also interested in mega rounds. So you you raised a sort of mega round quite early and one of the fastest, if not the fastest unicorn in, in UK history. Is a mega round very similar to a normal funding round with just different numbers or is it a different process altogether? Yeah, so... You know, if I look at the first experience with unproven founder back in 2003, you have sort of two things working against you. One, the fact that you're unproven and two, the limited places you could go to look for money back then. The second time I did it, which was 2007, there were two things that worked to my advantage. One was obviously you could get in and see anybody you wanted to see having had a success and people were much more receptive. And I think they, for obvious reasons, there's an appetite to back repeat entrepreneurs, particularly when you come with a ready-made team and other things. So it makes it a, a lot easier. And in that case, we went to, I think, three or four VCs and we had three or four term sheets Uh, very quickly. Now, that was a really interesting fundraising process because at the time we were fundraising is just, we were closing the round at the time that Lehman collapsed, the the, the first big round for that, right in the middle of the process. And actually, despite my track record and despite it being an interesting space and whatever, actually one of the big parties in that round pulled out and made it a very difficult process for us. So even with 
a track record and a great idea. When people get nervous, they run for the hills. It doesn't matter who you are. So that was not the easiest process because of, of the timing. In terms of mega rounds, funnily enough, we had a very similar situation with Kazoo, which was first round, we did raise a big round. I think we raised 30 million pounds. The answer is yes, we did put together a deck, but it was probably a dozen slides. And, and also we went back to a lot of people who had done very well with us before. So, you know, if you've made people a lot of money, they're inclined to take a punt on you again, I think. So we had a network of sort of fans and supporters, which makes life easier. And of course, you know, the repeat success helped again. But one of our big rounds that we did, we were doing in March of 2020. And I think that was our Series B. And the world fell apart in, in a Lehman-esque kind of way, but this time with COVID and lockdowns. And again, an investor who we thought very highly of, who had been involved with us previously, a big fan of ours, loved the space, but their investment committee, which was based in the States, just said, you know, no to everything. You know, it's not specific to us. We're just not writing any checks while the world looks like this. And so, you know, even when, you know, you have a lot of things going for you, things are never quite plain sailing. And I, you know, I always tell people that these journeys as well, as well as being long, they are never straight lines. And it's, it's very interesting because if you look at most of the businesses that I've been involved in, and, and, and this is, I apply very much to my angel investing. I don't pay a lot of attention to the decks that I'm shown. As an angel, I'm only doing pre-seed seed. I'm first money in. It's super early. And if I look at my investment decks for the businesses I started and then what the businesses actually ended up being, they're very different. If I pulled out the Zoopla deck from 2007, the first funding round, and then you looked at what that business was today, it'd be unrecognizable. So I take the same view as an investor, which is, look, if it's a big space and a smart team and they're doing something transformational, I don't really care what the deck says. You know, I want to give them time and money and oxygen to figure it out, right? You parachute super smart team into an enormous space, they'll figure it out and they'll make something work. And a good example of that actually is a business that, that Simon Franks and I backed years ago. I forget what the original business was called, but it became Perkbox. What we originally backed was something completely different. It was a completely different name. And the team realized quickly that, that, that there was a different opportunity. And you know, I'm, I'm never gonna go back and say, but hold on a second, you told me this was what the money was for. No, I'm only interested in, you know, you figure out where the best return is going to be. You know more about it. And so, you know, in, in terms of mega rounds versus smaller rounds, it's a similar process. It's a different investor set, probably. But I think part of what's changed over time is numbers generally have got bigger. This particular business, which we've now raised over a billion pounds for, through both public and, and private rounds, I was never going to do this. So if I think about where I was in 2018, having sold uh, Zoopla, you know, when it was taken private by Silver Lake, the issue for me was how can 20 years into the digital revolution, there be anything really exciting and big enough that somebody else hasn't done? 
And I almost assumed incorrectly that the answer was there couldn't be. And therefore, I was going to really struggle to find something to sink my teeth into. It turned out I was completely wrong and that the biggest single space was the least disrupted, which is which is cars. But then that begged the question that, okay, why? You know, it's 20 years in. I'm not the only person who realizes that you can read in any retail report that used cars is the biggest. And lots of other people have obviously, you know, figured out this. Why hasn't anybody attacked it? And the answer is because it's hard. And that goes back again to your very first question about what's entrepreneurialism. I don't look at it. When I say see that it's hard, a lot of people, I guess, see that and walk away. For me, I'm the guy who runs into the burning building, not the one who runs away from it. So the harder it is, I think the more opportunity to create moats in businesses. But of course, that takes time and money. And so the reason that this space hadn't been attacked in the way that we're doing it is partly because it's hard and so you need to solve a lot of problems, data, technology, brand, etc. But also that takes a lot of capital. You've got to build infrastructure. You know, we... You know, we've built a ton of infrastructure in the UK in the last two years. Vehicle reconditioning centers, 250 acres of storage, 20 customer handover centers, 300 vehicle fleet of deliveries. You know, this that all takes serious capital. So uh, I was only going to do this if I knew that I could go and raise that sort of money, which is why we did. But But the same is true that, you know, if you have people who both believe in the concept and know that you have the ability to deliver, or at least give it your best shot of delivering on what you're promising, then it certainly makes life uh, a, a lot easier. Super interesting. It sounds like there are, there are definitely a few investors who have been left regretful from not investing in you over the years. And so maybe a lesson not to let macro shocks get in the way of investing in private companies, perhaps. You actually touched on it that I was wanting to ask whether all of your businesses have turned out how you intended them to. Um, it sounds like with Zoopla, that wasn't necessarily the case, but I'm interested to learn what it is that causes businesses to have to adapt, to have to change. Are there roadblocks that mean you can't execute how you want to, or do you sense a bigger opportunity somewhere else? Yeah, it's a good question. So it, again, if I go back to the first one, we got into a business that we felt like we could beat the competition uh, and win with a better proposition because the competition then were, was some chains of video stores like Blockbuster and independent video stores. So we didn't view the competition as particularly scary. We thought we could take them on. We're not necessarily the smartest people on the planet. We didn't have the deepest pockets on the planet, but it felt like that was a challenge that we could overcome and we could win and then as that business started to transition into a different world which was digital not physical distribution of, of dvds by post we started to realize that the competitive set was changing dramatically or would change dramatically and that the level of investment you know creating uh you know your own content for example becoming a studio so you you move from competing with a blockbuster and independence who you know you can beat into a world of competing with, you know, Amazon and Sky and all sorts of Netflix and all sorts of other businesses, Apple, who you knew that you would probably struggle to beat and certainly 
struggle to outspend in terms of content. So, you know, we had a very, very clear view. Similarly, in, in the other business, in the business I'm in now, again, with the, the, the competitive set is not one that scares us in terms of the proposition they're providing or competency, etc. So, you know, we look at where can we apply our skills and our capital in a way that is going to allow us to win. And that changes over time for different businesses. The competitive dynamics change over time. The competitive set changes. The, the capital requirements change. If you think about the physical to digital content in our film business, that changes over time. So I think you've got to adapt. And one of the things that, that I want to see when I'm backing entrepreneurs is exactly that, is that they know exactly when to pivot, that they, you know, they, they're not people who dig their heels in, that they are prepared to recognize when things change. And, and Zoopla was a great example of, of that. And, you know, we never set out actually with Zoopla to say, you know, we're going to build a billion pound business or I didn't have that view at the time. And that business started as free data to consumers. We hadn't actually figured out a revenue model. So as I said, if I showed you the first business plan, we didn't have a view on how we were going to make money. What we knew was that we, you know, it was a big dinner table conversation. And if we let people just type in their address and we gave them a value for their property, that lots of people would do that. They'd look up their bosses and their parents and their cousins and properties. And that's, that's how that business started. It was a data business. And we, you know, we thought we'd get a lot of traffic and we'd figure out monetization down the road. So, you know, I've never necessarily set out and said, look, this is exactly what we're going to look like in five years or 10 years. And this is the size we're going to be. But if you go into a very, very big space, which touches everybody's lives, then you will figure out how to monetize that. And there's lots of better and bigger examples of, you know, Facebook and others who have taken the same view, right? Which is provide a great service to consumers and you'll figure out how to monetize it later. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, th I think our audience would also like to know a bit more about how you operate as a founder. Is there anything that you think specifically gives you an edge or separates you from other founders? If anything, I would say there may be a couple of things having watched other founders operate and, and watching people generally. My motto is, and, and, and I sort of drive this through to people I invest in, but also people who, who work for me, which is keep it simple. I found through sitting and listening to pitches for people where I start to lose track of what they're talking about. Things can be kept very simple. And if you keep them simple, they're more likely to succeed. The more complicated you make something, the harder it is to get people to understand what the hell you're talking about. And then it's harder to deliver because you're trying to do too many things at once. And so don't send me a 30 slide deck, send me three bullet points, right? On why you need to do it. Just keep things simple. I think that's one of the things that, uh, that may separate me because I've seen a lot of this. I see it all the time where people really think that the more they do or the more they explain the uh, you know the clearer it becomes it's not true the opposite is true and so keeping things simple and also i think just running fast what we've learned over the last 15 or 20 years in a lot of spaces is that there is first mover advantage there are often land grabs that's why capital uh, matters if you're disrupting in a market and 
the reason you beat the incumbents and technology is taking over in a lot of these spaces and why the incumbents haven't been the winners in the spaces that they had every right to win in, right? And you've seen this in almost every industry where if you'd imagine 20 years ago, okay, who is going to be the winner in that particular space? Not a single one of them is, right? Blockbuster didn't win. Netflix did, right? Barnes & Noble didn't win. Amazon did. So, you know, and there's a hundred examples like that. And that's um, about running fast. It's about being decisive. I tend to be very decisive. You know, if you're running a business, you have to make a lot of decisions. And I'm not the guy who says, let me go away and think about it for a week or even a day. I'll make a hundred decisions a day. Hopefully I'll get 90 something of them right. And I couldn't care less about the, the, the few that I might've got wrong because somebody once said to me, the worst decision you could ever make is not making a decision. And when you're running fast and you're trying to disrupt, I think that's, that's really true. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And I, yeah, I mean, that's a great takeaway for listeners, for entrepreneurs who are listening, because I think there are probably plenty of entrepreneurs who are kind of overthinkers and you can overthink your way out of a successful business, I should think. Well, because I'm in businesses very early, I often get asked, you know, to have a look at a deck as they're preparing for a series A or a series B. And then I see these decks, which, uh, you know, my advice is always really simple, which I think is the advice editors give people when they when they you know say i think i'm right going to write a book and they're told well okay there's a beginning there's a middle and an end and that's the same with writing a deck right i would much rather not see a 50 slide deck i'd rather see 15 slides that tell me what the opportunity is in the space why you're better than everybody else doing something different and gonna win and what the outcome is gonna be that's the beginning, middle, and end for me. And if you give me that pitch, it's a really exciting, huge space. I've got a better idea than anybody else, or I'm going to deliver it better than anybody else. And here's how great the outcome is going to be. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. And so, you know, keep it simple, stupid is my motto. That allows you also to move a little bit faster as well, I think, if you're just constantly, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but you're able to move fast if, if, if things are kept pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a bit like just saying I didn't have time to write a short letter. It's often harder to do something simple and short. <laughs> so I wonder if you've always had this drive and desire to be successful and to fix things that are broken or that could be better. What do you think a 10-year-old Alex would have thought of your achievements? Look, I, I think I knew quite early, and particularly I knew after having had a couple of jobs, that I probably wasn't going to be a great employee. You know, I knew early from my, uh, you know, I mentioned my dad was an entrepreneur. So that was sort of something that I knew I wanted to do. But of course, you don't come out of school or university and immediately do it. So, so you know, I did work for a while. I, and that reinforced for me that I probably wasn't, I wasn't going to be a great employee and that I'd have to figure out what to do on my own at some point. The, the drive to keep doing it, again, for me is, look, the financial success gives you a couple of things, but it doesn't, it's not, you know, I'm young, I've got young kids, or relatively young, um, I've got young kids, I'm, you know, work is my passion and my hobby, I love doing it, so it's not like I'm going to just go, go on to a beach somewhere, so, but the fixing it drives me, and, and the financial success d delivers you a bit of freedom to choose what's next. That's one of the things. And next could be for somebody going and lying on a beach. It's just definitely not for me. 
And it also allows you to do the other thing that we've been talking about, which is to reinvest in other areas. And that, you know, in my case, that's been in a couple of things. It's, it's afforded me the ability to do some philanthropy and it's afforded me the ability to reinvest in the ecosystem, particularly in the UK uh, and particularly in the digital space. So that's, that's my passion is, you know, my, my day job is sort of fixing these big problems, you know, on the side, I, you know, I love to try and help the, the next me figure out something even bigger and better. Well, I think that's a, a great insight into to what's motivating you and, and driving you. And I think the the UK tech scene owes you a big debt of gratitude for having that attitude to want to reinvest in the next series of entrepreneurs as well, which is great. So, Alex, we're incredibly grateful to have you on. We always like to end by getting our guests to do our dinner party guest game. So if you've had dinner with three people, it can be absolutely anyone. Who would they be for you? Well, look, if it was a chilled night in, I'd choose my wife and my two sons because that's uh, great. Uh, I think if it was a business dinner, I'd probably want to sit down with uh, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. And if I was sort of in a troublemaking mood, I'd probably get Barack Obama, Joe Biden and Donald Trump around the table to see how if we could make some fireworks. So, yeah, it depends on which night of the week and what mood I'm in. It's going to be a great dinner. Yeah. Yeah, any of them would be would be great. Um, well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on Riding Unicorns and, and telling us your Riding Unicorn story. Uh, there's so much useful advice and interesting anecdotes and stories within there for our listeners. So thanks again so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RidingUnicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.